Well, I'm glad that you're with us this morning. How are you guys doing? All right. Some of you are good. Good. (laughs) Hey, um, we are continuing the series that we've been in for a long time and that we're going to be in for an even longer time in the Gospel of John called Reveal, taking a look at the life of Jesus from the eyes of one of his closest friends, one of his first followers. And if you've been in in this with us, you know that we are just learning some amazing things about who Jesus is and what he has for us. And we're going to continue to see that today. But before we jump in, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of truth. And let me start with a question. Have you ever had to face the truth of something that you just didn't like? Has that happened to you yet in life? Yeah, it's kind of annoying, isn't it? It's kind of frustrating. That's the interesting thing about truth, is that truth is one of these things that exists outside of us. It's like beyond our control. Like there is truth that exists regardless of what I think and feel about it. And truth can just really be inconsiderate, can't it? (laughs) It's like, why would you do that to me? And I think that that's part of the reason why our culture is very confused about even the very idea of truth. And I think a lot of times in our culture today, we want to deny that there is even such a thing as truth. And yet what's interesting, and I don't know if you've ever encountered someone who says this or thinks this, like, hey, there is no such thing as truth. It's kind of an interesting thing for someone to say because to try to deny the reality of truth, you have to use truth to do it. And it's kind of a self-defeating thing. So, hey, there is no truth. Is that true? That there is no truth? Because if it's not true, then what you're saying is a lie, so why would I listen to you? And yet, if it is true that there is no truth, you just contradicted yourself, so what you just said is meaningless, so I'm, I'm just, what's, what's going on? So then we try to be a little more, more savvy about it, right? So then we're like, well, what I mean by that is there's no absolute truth. I mean, there's your truth, there's my truth, but there's no absolute truth. But again, what an interesting thing to say, because is that absolutely true, that there are no absolute truths? Because you use truth to try to deny truth again. And so I think what we have to face today is that truth exists. (laughs) That's the reality, whether we like it or not. And what we have to begin to understand is what do we do when we encounter truth? Because something incredible happens when we are hit by truth. And and if you have your message notes with you this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit before we jump into John today about the challenge of truth. That when we encounter truth, there is something that happens every time we encounter truth. And so this is the challenge of truth. When you and I, when we encounter truth, something happens and we can either change our lives to embrace the truth or we can change the truth to fit our lives. One of two things happens whenever we encounter truth. There's no other option. That's what what the choice is before us. Either I face this truth and then I I change my life in light of this truth or I don't like this truth so I try to change the truth to fit my life. It's kind of like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. (laughs) Sometimes it just doesn't fit so something has to change and if truth is that square peg and my life is that round hole, doesn't fit, I don't like it, something has to change. And so either I try to shave the truth and whittle it down so it fits me so I'm now comfortable with it or I face the fact that maybe I have to change to embrace this truth. And, and, and you know this is true from your own experience in your own life. Have, have you ever gotten that prognosis from the doctor that maybe it's time to start changing some of your habits? <laughs> like I'm, I'm in my middle 30s now and my metabolism isn't my friend so much anymore. And for the past two years I go to see the doctor and he's like, hey, okay, you need to start exercising, you got to change what you eat. Ooh, I don't know if I like that because I really like my chili cheese spaghetti. 
and they just open a Bob's in Northridge now? Like, are you sure I, that's not a main staple of my diet anymore? Are you sure I have to change that? And, and so here's the square peg of truth. Joel, you're getting older. Your body's not cooperating anymore. Either you change your life to fit that, or I deny, no, I'm good, I'm good. I look young, therefore I am young, <laughs> right? I deny that truth. Or, or how about with your finances? Have you ever had the zeros just add up to zero? <laughs> and, and it's just frustrating. I remember when I was 18 years old, they gave me my first credit card. Are you kidding? That's like giving candy to a baby, right? Like, like you just don't do that. And I remember when I was like six months into having my first credit card, and I maxed the thing out. And I'm at the store, and they're like, sorry, sir, your card is denied. No, something's wrong here. The truth and me. No, the, car, the card is broken. Are you sure? This little piece of plastic, like, like maybe they got to put more money on it, right? Because God forbid I, I realize that maybe I have a problem, that maybe I live in a culture that has a problem, that we are facing the consequences of this truth of how we handle finances. See, something has to change. Or, or how about this? Um, have you ever had a conflict with someone recently? We just had Thanksgiving with our families. Of course we had a conflict recently, right? <laughs> now, don't raise your hand in case you brought them here, but how many of you come from a family that has issues? Yeah, some of you are like, oh, right here next to me. Yeah, like, of course. Like, who doesn't come from a family that has issues, right? And, and, and yet, here's the thing. Have you ever thought about this, that maybe part of the issues in your family Part of that is you. No, that's the truth I don't want to face, right? Uh-uh. I'm going to shave this one down. They're the problem because that's the truth that fits my life, right? I want to deny that and, and tweak it. You know, God forbid that I try to change in light of that truth. And, and yet when we are hit by truth, we have to face the reality of it. And you need to understand that whenever you encounter truth, one of those two things is going to happen. You're either going to deny that truth or try to change it, or you are going to let it change you and be transformed by it. And this is something incredible that we're going to see today in the life of Jesus. He's going to make a radical claim about himself. And yet, if you remember, Jesus said something amazing about truth in John chapter 8. Do you remember what he said? He said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so what we need to understand is that the sooner we learn to embrace truth when we encounter it, the sooner we can begin to live life in light of it. And that is not always easy to do because to change in light of truth can be painful. It can be a process that takes years. And yet that's what we're called to do when we encounter it. And so today as we jump back into the book of John, we're going to see Jesus uh, having pleasant conversation once again with the religious leaders in his day. And you know that they bumped heads a lot. If you've been a part of the series, like we know that this, this long part of the series we've been in, it's just been him and the religious leaders just bumping heads, bumping heads. And they're going to just ask him a question point blank about who he thinks he is today. And we're going to hear what he has to say. And he's going to throw some truth at them that they're going to wrestle with. And we're going to ask the question, what does that truth mean for our lives today? What are we going to do in light of the truth of who Jesus claims he is? So if you have your Bibles, open them up for me to John chapter 10. John's in the New Testament. If you're, if you're new to your Bible or, um, you know, figuring it out, in the front of your Bible is a table of contents that can help you find the books we're looking in today. But there's been a little break in time since his last conflicts with the religious leaders. He's still kind of hanging around in the Jerusalem area. And so in John 10, 22, this is where we, we jump in. It says, Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. That, that's also known as Hanukkah. And so it's the holiday season. It was winter 
and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. Now you remember, he's, he said some crazy things in the temple area. Hey, I am the light of the world. Hey, uh, I'm the good shepherd. And, and there's just been these questions and conflict all along. And so the religious leaders are now going to come up to him and corner him. And so this is what happens. It says the Jews, and by the way, that, does, that, that, that capital Jews, that word there is really talking about the, the religious leaders. It's not an indictment against the whole race because Jesus was a Jew. This is the Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And the word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. So they're not asking him, hey, is your last name Christ? They're, they're saying, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the, 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 the hope of Israel? Is this who you are? And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. Right? Like, like I've told you, guys, I've told you this. Like how long have we been talking? It's, it's been pretty intense, right? He goes, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. So not only have I told you, but I've shown you by the things that I've done. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And he kind of echoes back to what he had said in the earlier part of John 10 when he's talking about how I'm the good shepherd and, and I have my sheep and I take care of them. And then Jesus says this in verse 27. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, we could just stop right here and say, okay, that's it. You want to know what you're called to do as a follower of Christ the rest of your life? There you go. Listen to his voice and follow him. Because that's what it means to be Christian. That's why a lot of times here at Rocky Peak, when we say Christian, we'll say Christ follower because we're trying to get back to the original meaning of the word. Because there is definitely a cultural term, Christian. You know, that sometimes means you're aligned with a certain political party or you're you're just like culturally a part of something. But the word Christian, as we try to embrace it here, goes back to the original meaning. You follow Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, look, if you belong to me, you listen to my voice and you follow me. And these religious leaders, that's why you don't belong to me, because you're not listening to me and you're not following me. And then Jesus is going to say something incredible. He's going to make an incredible claim, and he's also going to make an incredible comparison about himself and the Father. So verse 28, he says, I give them, my sheep, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. He's echoing these, these things that John had said earlier in the gospel. John 3.16, that very famous verse that's on the bottom of in and out in the Forever 21 shopping bags. You know that famous verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is what Jesus, this is this crazy claim he makes. Hey, follow me, believe in me, trust that I am who I said I am and you will have eternal life. He says no one can snatch them out of my hand. So we are secure in Jesus because we are in his hand. He is holding on to you. And now look at this incredible comparison he makes. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Okay, so you belong to me because my father has given you to me and no one is greater than my father. You want to mess with my dad? Go ahead. (laughs) But there's no one greater than him. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And so, so catch the imagery he's using here. You, you want to make sure that you grasp this because what he is saying is, look, my sheep listen to me and they are secure. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The reason why the Father has given them to me and he's greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So to be in Jesus' hand is to be in the Father's hand. 
Do you, do you grasp the, the imagery of what he's saying here? He, he's making a comparison between him and the father that's like very close. You need to grasp this imagery because what he's about to say is going to ruffle some feathers. He goes on in verse 30 and says this simple phrase, I and the father are one. Well, Jesus, what do you mean you and the Father are one? What are, you, what are you talking about? Well, he doesn't mean that they're the same person. Obviously, it can't mean that because he and the Father are distinct. But what does this mean that you're one? Well, what Jesus means is that he and the Father share a very unique and intimate relationship. That they are one in purpose, but they are also one in will, even one in nature. And sometimes to understand what Jesus is talking about, we have to look at what the first Christians understood to be true about Jesus as well. So what I want to do, just, just for a couple minutes here, keep your finger in John 10, we're coming back here. But I want you to see what some of the first Christians understood about Jesus in light of things that he said here. And so if you can do me a favor, keep your finger in John, flip to the right. Flip to the book of Philippians. It's after First and Second Corinthians, you'll get there eventually. This is what Paul is writing about to the first church here. And, and what he's saying in this chapter 2 of Philippians, this idea that we're called to be like Christ. So he was very humble. We're called to be humble. He put others first. We're called to do the same thing. And, and then in making this, he, he, he quotes from this early Christian hymn or this early Christian creed. And this is what he says, Philippians 2 verse 5. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature, who? God. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That there was a time where Jesus, who, in, who was God, came down as one of us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So who's God? Well, Paul's telling us that Jesus is God, but the Father's God as well. Flip to the right to the book of Colossians, one book over. Something else that, that Paul helps us understand about who Jesus is. Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul says this, he goes, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And, and understand that word firstborn doesn't mean born first. It's a term that means like number one, like preeminent. For by him... Jesus, all things were created to you and me. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. And then jump over to verse, or chapter 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So Paul has a pretty high view of Jesus here, huh? Yeah, and it wasn't just Paul. Jump back in John with me real quick. Keep your finger in John 10, but go to the very beginning of the book of John. We've looked at this a few times in the series, but I want you to catch this, because this is what the first Christians understood to be true of Jesus. John 1.1. 1, 1. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him is life. That, that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, when Jesus says this phrase, I and the Father are one, he's making an incredible claim about who he is. And, and in, in church history, th- this, this doctrine was developed once, at some point called the doctrine of the Trinity. And we like, so why do we have this funky doctrine? Because it sounds kind of strange. Do you understand that the Trinity, that there's one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? That this doctrine was formulated because it's our best attempt to explain how we see God revealed to us in the Scriptures. Right, well, how does that work? How can there be one God who's three persons? I don't understand that. I, I don't know how it, gra- how it fully works either. It's not a contradiction. It's just interesting. And maybe God is so much bigger than we can fully understand. Maybe God is so big, he can't exist as just one person. Maybe God is so great, he exists as three persons. And so here's Jesus saying, hey, guess what? I'm one of them. (laughs) I'm one of those persons. I'm God. The Father is God. And we're like, I don't know if I fully like that. I don't know if I fully understand that. Okay, don't let that hang you up. Just know it's our best attempt to explain it. I I think that we'll get there, and one of two things is going to happen. We're going to go, oh, duh, Trinity, hello. I get it. Or we're going to be like, ah, still not figuring that one out. God, you're so great. I'm just going to spend all eternity trying to understand you. But here's Jesus saying some incredible things. And, and now someone might say, that's not what he meant. I don't think that's what Jesus meant. When he said, I and the Father are one, like you're just taking this way out of context. Like he meant something radically different, right? But look at how they respond to what he says in John 10. My sheep are secure in my hand because in my hand they are ultimately in the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, verse 31, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. I love that John just says, again, like this is a regular recurring experience for Jesus when he encounters the religious leaders. They get along well. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, hold on, time out, hold on. I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. See, they got the point of what he was trying to say here, and they don't like it. (laughs) Like, you can't say that. Who do you think you are? Now, if you're Jesus, do you think this would be a great time to clarify what you meant if that's not what you meant? You think this might be a good time? Like, whoa, you, you thought I was claiming I was God? Guys, whoa, that's not what I meant. I and the Father are one, like, you know, like, like, like one love, like Bob Marley. That's what I meant. Like, you've totally misunderstood me here. But what's interesting is Jesus is going to reply to them right now, and he doesn't deny the charge. Instead, he's going to make a counterpoint to tell them, what's the big deal? If you understood who I was, you wouldn't have a problem with me saying this. And so he's going to point to something in the Old Testament. He's going to point to something out of the book of Psalms. Psalms 82.6, he's going to quote a verse there, and this is what he says in response to them. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? And what he's quoting from here in Psalm 82.6, it's a very poetic psalm. It's actually a poetic indictment against human rulers 
who have been called to give justice and to take care of the oppressed and the weak. And so in this psalm, God is talking to them, and, and he calls them gods, not in the sense that they are gods, but in the sense that they have godlike responsibility. And so he's calling them out. God is calling these rulers out, like, you are not doing what you're supposed to do with the position I've given you. And Jesus is saying, look, if God can call them gods, what's the big deal with me taking it if you understood who I was? Because he goes on. Because is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, meaning this is authoritative, right? You, you, you religious leaders, you believe this is God's word, don't you? Well, if in God's word he's calling them gods, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? So if God is calling mere men gods in Psalm 82, how much more appropriate is it for me to take that upon myself if I'm the one who has been sent from the Father? If I am the one who has been set apart by the Father, what's your beef? Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's son. I love this. He doesn't deny the charge. He just says, what's the big deal? Don't you know who I am? If you knew who I was, you wouldn't have a problem with this. And then he goes on. He says, do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles. And I love this about Jesus, because here he is with people that are just not buying into who he is, and he doesn't tell them, you have to believe me because I said so. He says, look, if you don't believe me because I said so, look at my life. Look at what I'm doing. Am I not showing you the Father by how I live? And if you can't even believe that, then look at the miracles I've done. I've healed the lame. I've healed the blind. I've fed people. I've done some crazy things. Don't you think this speaks for me? And I love this because Jesus never calls us to a blind faith. He never calls us to say, well, I guess I just have to close my eyes and hope it's true. He's given them every reason to believe. And faith in its simplest understanding is this word trust. And so when Jesus says, hey, follow me, believe in me, trust me, it's because he gives us reasons to do it. Let me show you who I am. Hey, you want to you know if I'm the real deal? Watch what happens when they kill me. Watch what happens three days later. I'll give you every reason to believe I'm who I said I am. And so he says in verse 3, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, he makes this incredible claim and this incredible comparison. So what do they do with the truth he throws at them? Again, they tried to seize him but he escaped their grasp. They all have nothing to do with it. This does not fit what they want to hear. And so Jesus goes away. Verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. So he has spent a lot of time discussing with this religious leaders, giving them every chance to buy into who he is. And finally he's like, okay, you guys don't want anything to do with me? Fine. You're on your own. I will go to those who want something to do with me. And so here he stayed, and many many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many people believed in Jesus. And there's a terrifying lesson here is that if we don't accept who he is, he'll let us. He'll let us walk away from him. And he'll go to those who want to accept who he is. 
And, and so here's Jesus throwing down some serious truth. And, and he's giving these religious leaders, here's a square peg, and I know it doesn't fit the round hole of your thinking, but do you understand who I am? And will you change who you are to embrace me, or will you shove me away? And we have to wrestle with that same idea in our lives today. What do we do with the truth of who Jesus is? Are we willing to take that square peg and, and, and change our lives to embrace it? Or do we take the square peg of this Jesus and what he says, and do we try to change him to become more comfortable, a Jesus that's, that fits our life? And we have to wrestle with that. And the reason why it's important that we understand what to do with him, the reason why we need to learn to embrace him, even if we don't always like what it means, is because Jesus' identity will ultimately determine who we believe is in charge of our life. Who has the authority in our life? Is he God? Is he in charge? Is he in control? Or am I the master of my ship? Who's in charge? Who's in control around here? And that's why we got to wrestle with his identity. And that's where Jesus' identity, it challenges us. It challenges us at the core of who we are. Are we going to buy into this or not? And I think Jesus' identity challenges us in a couple of areas. And so let's talk about these. Now, if you flip your message notes over, there's some things on the back. But wrestling with the truth of who Jesus is, wrestling with his identity, Jesus' identity, it challenges us. And the first thing it challenges about us, it challenges our disobedience. Because there are times in my life where I look to him and I say, who are you to tell me how to live my life? Who do you think you are? Do you understand? This is the, the, the question that the religious leaders are getting at in John 10 and verse 42 when they come to him and they're like, hey, just speak plainly. Are you the Messiah? Tell us. Because what they want to know is if you are the Messiah, then we have to embrace that truth and we have to change ourselves to adapt to you. But their problem with Jesus is that he doesn't fit their understanding of what the Messiah was going to be. He doesn't fit their paradigm of Messiah. And so they're wrestling with this. Because what they're looking for in the Messiah, they're looking for a political liberator. Hey, are you going to free us from Rome or not? Because so far you haven't done anything to demonstrate that to us. You know, you got these people and you're feeding them some loaves and fish. Great, but where's the army, Jesus? How are you going to free us? And yet Jesus is like, hey, I came here to free you for, for all eternity, not simply from the Romans. You're settling for so much less than what I've come to give you. Are you going to embrace who I am or not? And see, Jesus, he doesn't fit their view of Messiah because Jesus isn't supporting them. See, they're, they're the establishment. They're the ones with the position, and here's Jesus challenging them. Hold on, the Messiah is supposed to be on our team. What do you mean, you, what do you mean saying that our dad is the devil? What do you mean saying all these crazy things? We don't like who you are. We don't like what you're saying because this for them is ultimately a power struggle. It's ultimately the question, who has the authority here? And so when they're embraced with the square peg of who Jesus is, it doesn't fit the round hole of who they want him to be. They try to change him by killing him. And ultimately they do. And I think for us today, we can take that same idea, like we may not kill Jesus, but that square peg of who he says he is, it doesn't always fit who we are. Something has to change. So let me change Jesus because that's a lot easier than me having to change. And I think we can do that a couple of ways today. I think a couple of ways that we try to change the truth of who Jesus is to fit us is one is to simply deny that he was God. Sometimes the way we do this is to have the, the good man Jesus. And, and by that I mean we, we'll sometimes just say, well, Jesus was just a good man. That's all he was, no more than that. 
Because a good man Jesus, I can handle, I can handle, right? Because a good man Jesus is nice. He says some funny things. You know, he upsets some people, but he doesn't really mess with my life. And a good man Jesus fits my life, and I like that. The problem with a good man Jesus is that's not the option he gives us. Jesus never settles for simply being a good man. Jesus said he was so much more. Do me a favor, back in John, flip back a little bit. I want to see something else that Jesus said about himself in John 8. It's something that we looked at a couple weeks ago, but I want to come back and hit it and really help us understand the claim he's making about who he is. Because when we understand what he's saying about himself, we can't say he was just a good man. So in John 8, verse 48, he's having another interaction with the religious leaders, and things are going pretty well, as you'll see here. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon-possessed? So they're having a great conversation at Starbucks right now. And Jesus' response, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Again, a crazy claim. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? What a great question to ask Jesus. And Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. You need to understand the impact of what he just said right there. Because we hear that and we're like, Jesus, you just have bad grammar. Like, what what do you mean, I am? You are what? You know, I am here. I am in your face. Like, what do you mean by I am? You need to understand that Jesus is making an incredible claim about who he is because he's claiming the name of God with that simple phrase, I am. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3 and you read the encounter of when Moses encounters God at the burning bush, You remember the movie, Prince of Egypt? Right, you remember? Like, so here's Moses walking, and suddenly there's this burning bush, and God says, hey, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. And he goes, and he says, Moses, hey, I'm sending you back to Egypt, but I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. You know, and Moses is probably freaking out. Like, I go to the most powerful ruler in the world and say, hey, God said, let him go. Like this guy who doesn't know who you are, he doesn't have a clue who this God is, he has his own gods, he thinks he's a God, I'm supposed to go to him. He, he's never experienced you, and God's like, don't worry, he's going to experience me big time. And then Moses is like, well then who, who, who do I tell the people sent me? Because like, why would they listen to me? Because do you remember how it ended 40 years ago? I was trying to save them, and then they tried to throw me back to the, to the Egyptians, and I ran for my life, which is why I've been out here for 40 years. <laughs> it didn't go so well. Who do I tell them is sending me? And God tells Moses, you tell them, I am who I am. You tell them, I am has sent you. And God gives Moses his name, I am. It's a name that describes who he is. 
He is self-existent. Everything else is contingent on him. He doesn't need anyone. He is. So God, what's your name? My name is I Am. He says, tell them that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is sending you. And if you ever read in the Old Testament, you see the word Lord in all capital letters, the large capital L and then smaller O-R-D. That's the English translation of the Hebrew letters Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. It's his name. Who are you? I am. Yahweh. God gives his name to Moses so that he can go and tell his people, I am is coming. I am is here for you. I am is going to rescue you. I am will save you. And so now here's Jesus in his day talking to the religious leaders. Jesus, who do you think you are? I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now they get the point of what he said because what does it say they try to do right after that? They try to kill him again. See, the, see they understood what he said. And, and I know that we want to push back on this at times, and we wrestle with this because Jesus is God. Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to embrace this. But come on, I don't know if that's really what he meant. I mean, aren't we really taken out of context? Hasn't the church just twisted his words over the years? And, and all I'd say was go back to John 10 when he had a great time to clarify it. Hey, which of these are you killing me? Like, why are you stoning me? Well, because you are blaspheming. You and your man are claiming to be God. That would have been a great time to clarify things. But again, he doesn't deny it. Instead, he says, what's the big deal for me to say that if you really knew who I was, you would understand this to be true? And there's a challenge in embracing that truth, isn't there? Because if I'm going to embrace the truth that this is who he is, it means I have to change. I can't embrace Jesus without letting him mess with me. And I don't know if I want that. And I wrestle with that. A Jesus who's just a man, I can handle that because he doesn't mess with me. But that's one of the reasons why I think we wrestle with embracing this truth. And ultimately to deny Jesus then is to deny God, and that's why it's disobedience. But maybe it's not as big as that. Maybe it's more subtle. Maybe part of the reason why I wrestle with this and where it challenges me to fully embrace who he is is because if he's God, it means that he knows what's going on. It means he knows what's best for me. But sometimes what I want to do with that square, pre- square peg of truth of who Jesus is, I want to whittle it down to fit me. So I, I, I have my Jesus, the Jesus who doesn't always know what's best for me. I'm comfortable with that Jesus. Because have you ever done this? You don't have to raise your hand. You can point, but you don't have to raise your hand. But have you ever done something that you know a follower of Christ shouldn't do because you wondered if he really knew what was best for you? Or maybe he's holding out on you? See, I I do that often because I don't want to embrace who he says he is. A Jesus that maybe is God sometimes? Okay, because then maybe over here he doesn't know what's going on. It's fascinating for me right now. My youngest daughter, she's just turned one. And uh, she's at that stage now where she's mobile. She's exploring her environment. It's terrifying for me as a parent. <laughs> like, I wish there was a pack and play. I could keep her until she was 18. That would be great. <laughs> and, and as she's roaming around the house, starting to explore stuff, there's things that she's going to get into that, that isn't safe for her. It's not good for her. And because I love her, I'm willing to say these words that hurt her. No, no. <laughs> one of the things that she's fascinated with is our VCR, which tells you how tech-savvy my family is. We still have one. Remember those? These, these square rectangular boxes, and you shove them in this machine and movie. Wow, right? 
but she loves to go and poke and play with this thing. And a couple times she shoved her hand into where the tape goes, and as she pushes it in, the door catches her fingers, and her hand gets stuck. And she's like, ah, ah, you know, crying and pulling out. we got to rush over. And it's fascinating to me as she approaches this because I know what she's going to do, and I know this is going to be bad for her. So I will look at her as she gets close, and I will just say, no, no, Brooklyn. And it fascinates me because she'll stop with one hand towards the VCR, and she'll look at me, and she studies me. And I see the wheels turning in this little mind, and I understand what she's trying to figure out. Why would he tell me no? What is this word you use? What is this tone? Because it's different than the one who puts food on my plate and the one who changes the poopy pain in my butt. And like, like this is different. And she's trying to figure out, do you really know what you're talking about? Because this is what she wants, but dad's got a different voice right now. And I do that with Jesus all the time. I'm moving towards something that I think I want, that I think would be good for me, and then I hear him, no, no, Joel. I read in his word the life I'm supposed to live, the, the, the life I'm supposed to chase. Is that really what he wants from me? Do you really know what's best for me? Because this seems like a challenge. If I have to sacrifice this to embrace this, I don't know. Can I really trust that you know what's best for me? Because the Jesus who doesn't always know what's best for me, I can handle that Jesus because then I can say like, hey, I got it. I'll do this over here. Thanks. But if I really understand who he is, then I have to listen to him because I know that he knows what's best for me. Did you catch what he said in John 10, 27? He says, my sheep listen to my voice. Doesn't mean we always like his voice. (laughs) But then he says this, I know them. Do you understand that Jesus knows you better than you even know yourself? He created you. He designed you. He understands who you are supposed to be. And he understands who you are because of who you are. He knows what's best for you. And if I really understand who he is, if I'm really going to embrace that, then I am going to listen to him. And I have to realize that it's no longer my life on my terms. It's my life on his terms. And will I embrace that square peg of truth and let him change me because he knows what's best for me? That's why Jesus' identity, it's ultimately about authority, isn't it? Hey, who's in charge around here? Me or you? And will I trust you with that? Something else that his identity challenges for us in our life is that not only does it, does it challenge our disobedience, something else that Jesus' identity challenges is, is my doubts. Again, this is about authority. Who, not, not, not simply in the sense who's in charge, but this is about authority also in the sense who's in control around here. Because if you're really who you say you are, then, then that means you're God, which means obviously you're in control. But frankly, there's times where I don't, I don't always trust that you got, got it going on. Because whenever I doubt Jesus, ultimately this is what I'm saying. I don't think you can handle this, whatever this is. Oh, I know God of the universe created everything. I give you my eternal destiny. But I'm not sure about this one. I remember when I was in college, uh, 
I was out late one night studying with my friends at a Denny's. I use the word studying loosely. Um, and after we were done, we were walking back out to the car. And it's dark, and it's kind of a, a fall, so, so fall, fall evening, so there's some moisture on the ground. And so I'm, I'm not the most athletically prowess kind of an individual, so it wasn't very hard to think that I would slip in the parking lot. <laughs> and I did. I hit this, this, like, slick puddle, and I slip in. You know how sometimes you fall and you catch yourself, and then sometimes you don't catch yourself? This was one of those not catching myself moments. I remember as I'm flailing my arms, I land hard right on my shin, right on the parking curb. It's one of the things like you hit really hard and you realize this hurts, but this hurts more than just the normal hurt, you know? And and so I'm sitting on the ground just holding my leg like, oh, and as the pain kind of goes away, my friends are like, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, I think so. They help me to my feet. I kind of start walking and nothing is moving weird. It feels like it's okay. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'm okay. So we get in the car, we're driving back to school, and I'm holding onto my pant leg like this, just where the, sh- the, the shin bone is, and, and all of a sudden I feel my hand very wet. And I pull my hand away, and it's just coated in blood. And I'm like, yeah, this isn't good. So we rush back into the, the dorm, I rush into the bathroom, I pull my pant leg up, and there is like this dime-sized hole in my shin, just goo- oozing blood. And I'm like, oh, and my friend's like, what, what should we do? And I'm like, get a Band-Aid. <laughs> And so, so like, we kind of clean it up a little. I put a Band-Aid on it. And the weirdest thing is there's no hole in my pant leg. So whatever I had done, it had hit so hard that it pushed my jeans through my leg. Like, it, like weird. So I was grateful there wasn't a hole. If I could get the blood out, I can still wear the pants. Like, that's cool. So the next morning, I wake up, and I go to the bathroom, and I kind of check it out. And, and it had sort of stopped bleeding. And those of you that are, that are medically educated, you can maybe explain what this was, that, that I saw it was going on. But there's, like, a little pool of blood in the opening. And it, it's, like, my body pumped blood through my system, it would like fill and empty, fill and empty. And when it emptied, I would look and I'd see my shin bone. And I was like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> like, this is bigger than a Band-Aid. And so I, 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 I hobble over to the campus doctor and I get in there to see the campus doctor and um, I sit down and I show him my leg and, and I quote, he says to me, I've never seen anything like this before. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, you're supposed to be the doctor. I'm like, I'm out of here. Like, before you try any of your quackery, I am gone. So I get in my car. I drive across town to my family doctor. This is the guy that literally pulled me from my mother's womb. And I go in to see him. And so he makes, room, makes time for me. I get in there. And I'm like, hey, doc, like, I, I, I hurt myself. <laughs> and I show him. And he's like, oh, like, how long ago did this happen? And I'm like, it's, it's probably been like almost a day by the time I got to him. And he goes, like, this is serious. Like, you have a bone exposed to the atmosphere that could bring infection, all sorts of stuff. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to need to scrub it clean. I'm going to have to give you some local antibiotic shots. I'm going to have to stitch this closed. Then you're going to have to be on an oral antibiotic for a couple weeks to make sure that there's no infection. And I'm looking at this man, and I'm like, I just want a Band-Aid. <laughs> like, like, really, we have to do all that? But I let him because I know who he is and I know that he, he, he knows what he's talking about. I, I know that I can trust him with this. And, and yet so many times for me, it comes to Jesus and it's like, Jesus, can I really trust you with this? Can I really trust you with this area in my life? Because if, if I know who he is, I know I should be able to trust him with this. But he, here's where I think doubt really, the, the real core issue with my doubts. I think the core issue with my doubts isn't so much that I don't trust that he can handle it. Isn't so much that I don't trust that he's in control. I think the real issue for me with my doubts is that I don't always like how he chooses to handle my situation. Jesus, can I really trust you with this? Because what I want is the band-aid. 
and yet you seem to be doing something totally different. Can I trust you? Can I trust you with my relationships? Like, Jesus, my marriage is hard right now. And I don't know what's going on with me and this person, but things are not what I want them to be. What are you doing? What are you doing in this? I thought you were in control. Are you sure you can handle this? And in that moment, I have to decide, am I going to trust him or am I going to take the reins back into my hands? Hey, Jesus, with my singleness, I don't know if I can trust you with this. I mean, I look over the fence and I see all the problems they're having, but I still want to be on that side of the fence. And yet, will I trust you with my singleness? Are you really in control of this or will I have to take matters into my own hands and fix it? In my finances, can I trust you with this? Because honestly, I don't know what kind of math you're doing, but it's not working down here. And yet on top of this, you still want me to trust you and give something? Like, uh, what? Are you really in control? Can you handle this? Jesus, I don't understand what's going on with this. With my health, I don't get this. Why am I not getting better? Why do I have this disease? What are you doing? Because I, I thought that you would put the Band-Aid on this one. With this bitterness in my heart towards this person, and you want me to forgive them? That's not what I want to do. Are you really in control of the situation? Am I really going to trust that you can handle this? Because here's the thing that blows my mind about Jesus. If he could take the darkest moment of his life, the cross, arguably the darkest moment of our, our race as humans, if he could take that and turn it into his greatest triumph, if he could take that moment and through it bring me, a rebel, back to him, I think he can handle whatever I'm facing today. But the challenge is, is that what I want from Jesus is for him to change my circumstances. But maybe what he wants for me is to change me and to grow me in the midst of my circumstances. And if I really believe he is who he says he is, then I know he's in control even if I don't get it, even if I don't like it. And am I going to trust him anyways? Because too often when I'm faced with that square peg of who he is, I want to change that peg to be a Jesus that I want. I want to make a karaoke Jesus. I want a Jesus who sings the songs I want to hear him sing. Hey, Jesus, sing this one because I like this one. Hey, Jesus, this one makes me feel good. Hey, Jesus, this is the happy, clappy one. I like this song. Sing this one. But maybe what Jesus wants for me in this season of my life is maybe he wants to teach me to sing a new song. And I have to look at him and know, do I really trust that you are who you say you are? That maybe you have a song list that's far greater than I have ever imagined. That maybe there are songs that you have been singing for all eternity that you've invited me into and you want to teach me to sing them. So will I listen? Will I trust? Will I let you teach me a new song? This is what he says in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. Notice he doesn't say, and I will give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. Like he's giving it to us now today. That we're experiencing the hope of forever in our relationship with him today. 
I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. That there is not a situation or a circumstance that is beyond his control. The question is, will I trust him? Will I let the truth of who he is change me so that I become someone radically different? Will I embrace that and experience what he has for me? Do you believe he is who he said he is? Because that determines everything about what you do with him, about who you believe ultimately has the authority in your life, about who you believe is the one who's in charge, about who you believe is the one who's in control. Do you let that truth change you into the person he set you free to become? Or do you try to change that truth because it's far more comfortable? That's what we have to wrestle with. That's what these religious leaders missed out on. And yet that's what he offers to us. And so this morning as we just continue together, the worship team is going to come on up and, and they're going to teach us a new, so- a new song this morning. Excuse me. And uh, as they start to lead it out, I would just invite you just to sit back and let the words kind of hit you. And in the name of this song, it's called Yahweh. We're going to sing the name of our God as we worship him together. That the God of the universe came down to walk amongst us to give us new life, to rescue us and to set us free. That he is not only our God, he is our savior. He's the lover of our soul. He's the one who's come to rescue us. And because he is God, he is in charge, which means that we can look to him And because he is God, it means he's in control so we can keep hoping in him despite the circumstances of what we face. So let's pray and then we'll go into this time together. Jesus, we just come into this moment. And I think for many of us, we're wrestling with the truth of who you are because there are serious implications for our life in that. And yet, if you are who you said you are, you are worthy of our worship. And so would you show us what it means to worship you? Because in worshiping you, we stop looking at ourselves. So would you teach us to worship you in truth and in spirit? And we are changed when we worship you because not only are we reaching out to embrace you, but you are reaching out to embrace us. And in that moment, we are changed. And so, Yahweh, we worship you.